0: Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
1: I thought I'd get a lot of pushback from the mental health community. I thought psychiatry and psychology would be really upset that I was putting in a positive light, something they, they would see as a risk to mental health. And the biggest surprise was the fact that I could not find people in those fields to critique psychedelic therapy.
2: Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. So obviously, a lot happened in the election. Parts of the election are still happening. We are in this liminal space where the election is both settled and unsettled—settled in reality, but unsettled in an alternative reality being constructed by the current president. We've obviously talked about that on this show. We will continue to talk about it. But something happened. Something happened in Oregon. And not just in Oregon, but but, but primarily there, that I want to focus on, because I think it may end up being a, an important cultural moment, and at the very least, I am interested in it. In Oregon, a proposition about initiative passed, called 109, with 56% of the vote. It's about the same margin that Joe Biden beat Donald Trump by. It didn't legalize or medicalize or decriminalize, although that happened elsewhere, psilocybin, the, the psychoactive ingredient in magic mushrooms. What it did was it created an entirely new structure in which these could be used in a therapeutic context, in which people are going to be licensed and trained as psychedelic facilitators, in which then you can go to these people and have a safety screening and then have an actual psychedelic experience in their facility under their guidance and then have integration therapy with them. It is Harkening back to a period, uh, an often forgotten period in psychedelic use, it came before the explosion of widespread use in the 70s, back when psychedelics were understood as primarily a psychotherapy aid. Primarily, something that was proving itself to be, or was thought to be, at least by some, to be an almost wonder drug for treating all kinds of mental health issues, but also just helping people improve their lives. An important thing about therapy is that it's not, you don't always go with a diagnosis or a problem. Sometimes you go because you just want to better yourself. It's um, why I, I, I'm a big proponent of therapy. Uh, I, I still go to therapy today, and I don't go because I'm trying to fix something. I, I go because it is supportive for me in, in living a better life. And so this... I don't know. I don't know where this is going to end. There's a lot of regulatory space that needs to be cleared on it first. The, The governor is going to have to appoint a board and that board is going to have to define all kinds of terms and how do you license these people and what are the safety conditions. And, you know, there are a lot of ways this could go sideways before it actually gets implemented, but also maybe not. And if not, this is going to be experiment of a kind with a legal structure around it that we have not really seen in this country or actually anywhere in the world. The creation of the first society in, in Oregon where psychedelics are a normalized, used, and accepted part of how people experience and also change their experience of the world. And that could end up being a really profound hinge point or, not, or it could not, right? It could just become not you know, not that much at all. And I don't know. Um, I'm interested in the research showing these compounds have profound possibility for treating uh, a number of mental health conditions that we are really just no good at treating. For instance, treatment-resistant or drug-resistant depression, which in the name you can tell it's hard to treat, but major depression, addiction, a number of things that are endemic in our society. And that there's some real promise that maybe this very, very different modality could do something to help millions and millions of people. But I'm also just interested in what's going to happen to society if psychedelic use becomes normalized, because it it really does tilt a lot of folks on their axis, um, particularly depending on uh, on how it's done and what its cultural context is. So of course, the person I want to talk about this with is Michael Pollan. He's the author of the book, How to Change Your Mind, which I think is the, the single best book on psychedelics, their history. It tells this particular therapeutic history really, really well his article that led to that book is also the article that years ago set off this movement in Oregon. So he is himself part of this story. Um, he's been on the show before. Uh, it's always a pleasure to get to talk with him. So this was a, a really fun episode. As always, my email is at box.com. Here is Michael Pollan. Michael Pollan, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Ezra. Good to be back. So tell me about
1: Proposition 109 in Oregon. What does it do? It's a really unusual uh, ballot initiative. Basically, it compels the state's Department of Health to set up a program to license psychedelic guides who want to administer psilocybin and to license people to grow psilocybin, all of which, you know, remains a a federal crime. But it's going to be a really interesting experiment in how to bring not just psilocybin, but psychedelic therapy up from the underground where it is right now.
2: So I I didn't know this before I began doing some reporting to prepare for this podcast, but I was talking to people involved in the campaign. I learned that it was your New Yorker article years and years ago now that inspired the effort that became this initiative. Were you involved in it in any direct
1: way? No, I heard that story too. I met the two therapists who started the whole thing. I was speaking up in Portland, I guess the year before last, and we got together and I was very skeptical of it and they wanted to sit me down and tell me why it was a good idea. And they were somewhat persuasive that they were approaching it with incredible care and trying to to game out all the potential uh, pitfalls. You know, they're therapists themselves, and it doesn't provide, you know, for decriminalization of psilocybin. There's no kind of commercial sale permitted. And it's an attempt, you know, it's a recognition that these are powerful substances, that they have to be managed very carefully and regulated very carefully if they're to have the, the possible benefit. I still see some potential pitfalls in what they've done. Basically, it provides for a two year period of negotiating with the federal government. Now, how's the federal government gonna feel? How's the FDA gonna feel that you have now a state body usurping its drug approval role? I don't know. I mean, probably is an easier shot in a Biden administration. The other thing that is, I think, a bit of a, uh, a concern is that if they don't come to terms within two years, as I read the, uh, the proposition, Oregon goes forward anyway. Uh, so how are the Oregon state officials gonna feel about being put in that position? You know, they're counting on what happened with state legalized cannabis to happen with psilocybin, which is that, you know, at a certain point, the Obama Justice Department issued a, a letter saying that they weren't going to prosecute crimes if they didn't get out of hand and they were basically going to let the states experiment with the legalization of cannabis they're hoping for the same thing but i think some different interests may come into play such as the food and drug administration's interests so so tell me a bit about your skepticism because when i read
2: this initiative what it seems to me to be doing is going back to a period that i learned about from your book this pre-timothy leary pre-1970s era in psychedelic therapy, where these substances were initially understood as very, very powerful therapeutic aids. Um, Cary Grant did LSD-assisted psychotherapy 50, 60 times, something like that, he said in a Playboy interview. And that they're trying to recreate this new space, which is not legalization, not medicalization, not decriminalization, but a therapeutic structure, which is, in, in, in my Understanding of this, like the Michael Pollan uh, space of it, but but you're you're pretty skeptical, and you've been pretty skeptical on some of the other decriminalization legalization efforts. So so tell me what you're tell me where your head is and what you're concerned
1: about. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm skeptical because I'm just skeptical. I you know I'm encouraged by some of these developments too. I really do believe that you know the states that they say are laboratories of democracy, and this is going to be one really interesting experiment. They may figure out things that will be useful the ground they're venturing onto is beyond the medical use of, even though they use the term therapeutic and psychedelic therapy, they're not limiting this to people with a diagnosis of depression or anxiety or OCD or whatever. It's anybody who wants this, who, you know, can safely avail themselves of it, pass a kind of medical exam or, or medical history. So, you know, many of the people who've been involved in the Now, you know, 20-year campaign to bring psychedelics back into respectability. We're concerned that merely medicalizing them would not benefit everybody and that they were also useful for the betterment of well people, as uh, one of my sources put it memorably, and that what do we do about those people? The kind of people who now might see a therapist, even though they're not Technically depressed or have, you know, have a diagnosis uh, with a code and that those people do benefit from psychotherapy and those people could benefit from psychedelic therapy. So, how do you, how do you fit them into the picture? Um, basically, the two avenues we have for legalizing the use of psychedelics is the medical route, which passes through the FDA. And by the way, will probably happen in the next oh, two to five years but then the drug will only be available to people with a diagnosis. And then you have this religious route, which I think we should be paying more attention to because I think it has a lot of potential. And that is, you know, under the First Amendment, certain groups, including Native Americans and people in two ayahuasca churches, have uh, the First Amendment right to use psychedelics as a sacrament. I think you're gonna see a lot more efforts to incorporate new churches. The government is loath to say, you're not a church. They pretty much go along with people who say they are a church. And some of the religious freedom decisions that the right in the court have uh, promulgated in the last few years, I think are gonna spring a surprise on those justices because they set the groundwork for this spiritual use of psychedelics. But anyway, right now, Oregon is, is going into that middle area, the betterment of well people, and taking guides who presumably have been working underground and giving them a license to work overground. So, you know, I just kind of, I applaud the care that went into it. You know, is this the best way to make law? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, in general, I don't think ballot initiatives are the best way to make law. And I hope that it's been really well-written and carefully written. But as I say, there are a couple potential grenades out there. One is what happens after two years of negotiations with the feds haven't haven't produced some sort of accommodation.
2: And I'll say as somebody who who like in my policy wonk guise, the way this initiative works, it outsources a lot to to the governor and to the Oregon Health Board. And so in February, the governor has to appoint a committee that is going to be responsible for making a lot of the regulatory decisions about how this work, how you license people, how you set up the safety screening, how hard it is to become a licensed facilitator is going to have a huge impact on the supply of opportunity there is to to go do this. I mean, there are only eight people who get the licensing in the entire state. It's just going to be such a big waiting line that it's going to be functionally uh, illegal. So a lot is going to depend on what the regulators do and what Governor Kate Brown ultimately wants to do with it. Right. A world where they want to use this to make this kind of therapy available is going to be very different from a world in which they don't. But the the, the therapy is the part that I really want to focus on in this conversation, because it's a very, very different modality. And when you were on the show last I focused on the part of your book that was about the brain and consciousness and, and 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 what psychedelics tell us about that. But there's a lot of history in your book about this pre-70s period where psychedelics are a therapeutic tool and what that taught us about how therapy worked, and then what possibly got lost as an approach to treating mental health and the difficulties there. And so I'd like to, to re-explore that. So can you talk a bit about that? Can you talk about this, I would almost call it this lost psychedelics era that, that I think is only recently being repopularized?
1: Yeah, but before I do, let me just go back to your point about uh, the complexity of making this happen. Oregon is really good at doing these things. You know, they did assisted dying uh, with incredible care and success. Uh, They were very early to legalize cannabis, but you're right. It depends on the goodwill of the governor and other bodies in Oregon to do this. I think they're well-inclined. I think there is political support within the state. So I I wouldn't, skeptical as I am, I wouldn't doubt their ability to pull it off if they're so inclined.
2: I would also say, by the way, just to, to add one thing on that, as a political economy measure, Given that these things are, are passing pretty easily now, I mean, this passed with 56 percent. It's the, the Joe Biden got 56 percent against Donald Trump in Oregon. So this was not a close call in Oregon. And I think it won something like half of counties. So that included a lot of rural red counties. If Oregon can create a regulated, structured way of doing this, that's going to be one thing. And if they can't, a lot of the effort is going to turn towards decriminalization and much more open ended forms of medicalization. And so people who actually don't want this to become a free-for-all, who are even a little bit more still on the skeptical side of it, should want this to be done carefully. Because if there is nothing really between legalization and and often medicalization acts as backdoor legalization and prohibition, then people are going to start just pushing for, for legalization. Whereas this is a real effort to try to create something that doesn't exist, this sort of therapeutic modality that could be interesting and could at least allow for a lot more structure in the way people have these experiences and in the way bad experiences or um, people who shouldn't have them are watched and protected.
1: I agree, and that's why there's a lot riding on this. And, uh, you know, and I sincerely hope that it succeeds because the alternative, uh, the sort of free-for-all we have with cannabis uh, is just really not a good idea with uh, with psilocybin. It's a, it's a very powerful substance and people do get into get into trouble on it. And um, I've always believed that if you're going to mess around with this stuff, at least at high doses, it has to be with a guide. It has to be after you've been, you know, qualified medically to do it, uh, that you're sufficiently uh, psychologically stable. And you want someone asking those questions and being present. And this does provide for all that. But the model that they're using does go back to, a model of therapy that was devised kind of willy-nilly, you know, through trial and error in the 50s when you had this first age of psychedelic therapy. You know, many people think of psychedelics as very closely tied to the 60s and as a 60s phenomenon. But one of the surprises in writing the book was realizing how much was going on in the 50s. And in fact, even the word psychedelic, which we think of as a 60s word, was coined in 57 in a correspondence between a psychiatrist uh, Humphrey Osmond, an English psychiatrist working in Saskatchewan, and Aldous Huxley, the, the writer who was very interested in psychedelics and had had a very big mescaline experience a couple years before that he uh, immortalized in The Doors of Perception. And actually, it was the psychiatrist who came up with the winning term in this discussion. Psychedelic simply means mind manifesting. And what Osmond and his cohort... And it involved some very interesting people in and out of professional mental health care, including a very odd, mysterious character named Al Hubbard, who is kind of a, um, oh, I don't know, you know, semi-intelligence officer, entrepreneur, inventor, and Johnny Appleseed of psychedelics. He, more than anyone, figured out the best way to administer the drugs when they first started giving people psychedelics, whether it was psilocybin or before that, LSD or mescaline, they would just put them in an examining room, you know, white walls, fluorescent light, give them the drug and leave. And some people had some pretty rough experiences because as Timothy Leary taught us a few years later, set and setting are very important when it comes to psychedelics. They're incredibly suggestible drugs And so your mindset and your physical setting, basically your inner and outer environment, has a huge bearing on what kind of experience you'll have. So Al Hubbard, working with these other psychiatrists, said, you know, you've got to create a kind of very nurturing living room situation. You want flowers, you want maybe some religious symbols, some Buddhas, some crucifixes. He always brought in pictures of, of Mary and Jesus into his treatment rooms. And then you wanna play soothing music, classical music, and maybe put uh, blindfolds on people, eye shades, which would encourage them to go inward rather than having this kind of very interesting but distracting experience uh, dealing with your senses and what the sensorium is delivering. And that it'd be a very non-directive therapy That you're with the patient who is lying down headphones on eye shades on you're not saying very much you're offering a few words of comfort if they need it but the medicine should take people where they need to go and that the mind like the body fundamentally knows how to heal itself if given the opportunity so that was kind of the ethos of the therapy and that continued into the sixties until you had this big backlash, be, which begins around 1965 when the culture and the government turn against psychedelics. Before that, it's important to realize it was considered a miracle cure. It had the best press. I could not find a negative article about psychedelics until 1965. The Luces were in love with LSD. Uh, Henry Luce and Claire Booth Luce, you know, they own time and life which all the reporting was enthusiastic, almost promotional. There was a rule at Time, Inc. that Mr. Luce had to see any article on psychedelics before it was published to make sure it was sufficiently positive. So it's hard for us to imagine a moment where that was the take, but there was a a real consensus that this was an important therapy and we knew how to do it. And it worked for several different things, depression, anxiety, people approaching death, OCD, and alcoholism, especially. That was a very common use of uh, LSD therapy, uh, in fact. So this kind of therapy disappears for a period of time, although it, it survived underground. There's kind of this saving remnant of people, many of them credentialed psychologists, psychiatrists, who were so convinced of the value of psychedelic therapies that that they were willing to risk their freedom and livelihood and licenses by going underground. And this spawned a, a culture of underground therapists that still exists. Um, and I've met many people in it and many of them trace their lineage to people who had been doing it legally until the late sixties and then continued illegally. And so the knowledge of how to do it survived. It's almost like that, you know, this. I don't know, this dark age or this medieval period where there's a body of knowledge on how to do something and it's rejected officially, but continues kind of in this vernacular way underground. And when you have the research, uh, the university sponsored research start again around the year 2000 uh, at Johns Hopkins uh, to start and UCLA, they draw on that model How they know about it, I don't know, either because they had experience underground or there was enough that had been written about it, although there wasn't a lot written about it, that they would do it the same way. It's never been kind of scientifically verified that that's the optimal way to do it, but it is the tradition and it continues and it's certainly what they have in mind in Oregon. Can you
2: hold for a minute on the alcoholism story here? Because something that was a striking story to me in your book is it the founder of AA? Part of his story of sobriety was a psychedelic experience, um, one I wasn't familiar with—not not LSD or psilocybin—but he ends up. Belledon. Yeah, he ends up being a fan then of uh, of LSD. That sort of gets wiped out of that story. And of course, like the modern Alcoholics Anonymous is is very against um, most kinds of mind altering substances. But but do you want to talk about that for a minute?
1: Yeah. So Bill W., who was the co founder of AA. Uh, I think he was a New York advertising executive and uh, he he hit bottom and ended up at a hospital in New York where he was administered uh, a drug called Belladonna and had this sort of mystical experience, even though it's not technically a psychedelic, I think it's technically a deliriant and a pretty toxic drug, but I, somebody was experimenting with it at the time. And he had this uh, spiritual awakening. Which, of course, many alcoholics, uh, when they hit bottom, talk about. It. And the theory, I think, was you could essentially simulate the DTs, the, you know, the horrible hitting bottom of uh, of the alcoholic, which is frequently followed by some sort of spiritual awakening. And that you could essentially induce that without the, the person having to go through the physical pain of it by giving them a drug. After he got sober and founded AA and remained on the board for a couple of years, in the mid to late 50s, he went to the board and said, you know, and he'd, he'd gotten some LSD therapy too in the interim and felt it was really useful. And he thought that LSD should be incorporated in AA and what they do. The rest of the board, I think, thought better of this and felt that, you know, it kind of... It's kind of clearer to ban all intoxicants and making an exception for LSD struck them as a a confusion of their message, which I can understand. But at the same time, you had several large trials of LSD to treat alcoholism. And they were getting, uh, somebody once went back and re-examined the research and they were getting about a 50% success rate, which is quite striking for alcoholism. I don't know that we have anything else that approaches 50% success. Uh, and there were hospitals doing this in LA and in uh, in Vancouver, especially. Al Hubbard had a wing of a hospital and he would fly people up in his private plane, many celebrities from LA, and treat their alcoholism uh, himself in this wing of a hospital in Vancouver. So that was one of the leading indications that LSD was used for. And right now you've got a very large trial uh, using psilocybin to treat alcoholism in New York. And the early results of that have been quite promising. So the use of psychedelics to treat addiction, which might sound counterintuitive to people, using one drug to treat another, actually has shown a lot of promise, not just for alcoholism, but smoking cessation, where they've gotten some dramatic results at Johns Hopkins, like uh, seventy or eighty percent success rate, and also cocaine addiction. And there's a, a proposal out there, I believe at Johns Hopkins, to to treat opium addiction, uh, opiate addiction, which I think is, you know, given the the scale of that problem, would be uh, uh, terrific if if that was taken on and, and shown to work.
2: So, so I want to pick up on something here. You used the term the medieval period or dark ages a bit ago to talk about the way some of his knowledge fell out of circulation, or at least wide circulation. But another place I think it connects is in a way that we do not like to admit for a pretty wide variety of mental health disorders, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, um, which is not indicated for for psychedelics, but addiction, all kinds of things that are uh, afflicting huge numbers of people, we have really no idea how to treat them. We have a set of therapeutics that work for some people and not others with pretty big side effects. We have a set of treatment protocols, including different kinds of therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy and, and so on that work for some people, and not others. And this is all fine. We have things like AA, but then also other kinds of modalities for treating addiction. But we are not good at this. It all has the patina of science and people know there are medications out there. And if you, you don't know people who go through this, you may assume you just need to go get help and then you get like written a script and, and, and it's all cool. But that's really not where we are. We're actually really, really, really rudimentary in our ability to treat some of these disorders. And these disorders are growing in their prevalence in the country, particularly among young people, in a way that's pretty scary. And, and I think sometimes we don't look that straight in the face that like, we are actually in a crisis here. We don't have good tools. And to some degree, desperate measures are really indicated for.
1: You know, when I started doing this book, uh, How to Change Your Mind and published it, I thought I'd get a lot of pushback from the mental health community. I thought psychiatry and psychology would be really upset that I was putting in a positive light, uh, something they, they would see as a risk to mental health or a fringe therapy. And the biggest surprise of publishing this book, Ezra, was the fact that I could not find people in those fields to critique psychedelic therapy. And that in fact, they were so desperate for new tools, as they very clearly laid out to me, that they embraced it. That yeah, desperate measures were called for. The first time I had an inkling of this, was that article you alluded to in the Yorker right before it was to publish, like two days before closing, the editor came to me and said, look, we've got to, it was was all about psychedelic therapy and it was a pretty positive view of it, even before the peer-reviewed research had come out. But the word came down from the editor that I had to find somebody who thought this was all bullshit. And so... I hustled around, I made a bunch of phone calls, and I I thought, I'm gonna call Tom Insel, who at the time was head of the National Institute of Mental Health. I figured that's gotta be some establishment guy. He's gonna give me the quote I need to get my article published. And I get the guy on the phone, he's at Davos. And the first thing he says to me when I I describe the research and what does he think about it? He says, I think it sounds like something we really should pursue. And he later explained to me, I took him out to lunch when he was back. He said, you know, you have no idea how poor our tools are and how broken mental health care is. He had, he had given up the job by the time he said that, by the way, but, and he said, if you compare mental health treatment to any other branch of medicine, oncology, cardiology, infectious disease, we have achieved so little. We have not lengthened the human lifespan. We have not substantially reduced suffering the way those other branches of medicine have. And so the idea that we might have a powerful new tool here is something that we should all embrace and and take a really good, hard look at. So that's been a big surprise, how widespread support for this research is in the mental health community. And that's one of the reasons it's proceeded without a lot of pushback so far, as he made clear to me, and I I didn't know SSRI antidepressants, which are really the the leading tool for treating things like depression and anxiety and OCD. Uh, first of all, that's you know they're not new exactly. They come along in the '80s, and since then their effectiveness has declined, as often happens, by the way, as drugs age or central nervous system drugs age, that they never did much better than placebo in drug trials. Uh, They did about two percentage points better than placebo. And that, of course, people don't like taking them. You have to take them every day, presumably for the rest of your life. They're, in effect, addictive. They're very hard to get off of. And they have side effects that people don't like. For many people, they put on a lot of weight. They lose their libido. You know, they're they're very crude tools and not that effective. So the idea that a treatment that you only do once or twice, and this is, I think, a really interesting aspect of this treatment. Yes, it's a pharmacological treatment, but only incidentally. It's an experiential treatment. People have a kind of experience that heals them. And the drug makes that possible. But if they don't have the experience, which is to say this, powerful sense of very often ego dissolution or ego softening, followed by a a new sense of connection with some entity larger than themselves, what the scientists call the mystical experience, it doesn't work very well. Those are the people who have the most success. So it's a completely different paradigm for treating mental health. And in fact, it has more roots in shamanism than, you know, Western pharmaceuticals. Insofar as the expectations are so important and the and the setting and the and the whole gestalt of the event. But you're only going to take one or two pills in the course of your treatment, not one every day. So you can see the challenge for the pharmaceutical industry if this all pans out. How do you make money giving people one or two pills that are essentially based on a, you know, a mushroom that grows wild? Yeser Clanshell will be back
2: after a short break. I want to get into how this actually works on on two levels. One, what is actually being done, what you would see if you followed me around as I got psilocybin treatment, and then two, what we think may be happening. But, But let's start with the first. I think most people who are experientially familiar with these drugs, they will have been so as a high school student who got mm-hmm. a bag of mushrooms, who hung out in their friend's room, and then maybe they took a walk.
1: Yeah. That's not what's <laughs> or happening Or went to a here. concert.
2: So, right, so so what's happening here? What, what would you see if you followed me around on it?
1: Yeah, so, you know, people who have experience with these drugs in the so-called recreational setting, which I, I you know, to abuse a perfectly good word, are not having this, the same kind of experience. And that has to do with set and setting. When you use these drugs with the kind of intention that comes with the therapeutic context, you're going into it trying to deal with a problem. Because of the eye shades and the music, you are going inward and you're using a much higher dose than you were using in their room with your high school friend. Um, You have no idea what I did. (laughs) You're right, I have no idea. But it's the kind of dose where you couldn't very easily take a walk uh, or you might never come home.
2: Okay, well, I didn't do that.
1: <laughs> so it's a pretty high dose it's an, and it's enough. Uh, I mean, for people who are curious, it's about 25 milligrams of pure synthesized psilocybin, which is equivalent to four or five grams of uh, dried mushrooms. It's, it's what some would call a heroic dose. It's enough that you very often have this experience I mentioned of ego dissolution, of uh, a a sense of transcending your individuality and finding yourself merged with uh, nature, with the cosmos, with God. And the mystical experience is, is a quantifiable thing in psychology, believe it or not. I had no idea, but it has these eight characteristics that include ego dissolution, a unitive consciousness where you're merging with something larger, transcendence of space and time, upwelling of, of you know, a, a great feeling, a very positive affect.
2: Nothing takes the fun out of a mystical experience quite like a checklist.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a survey you can fill out. And I did it actually after <laughs> D- one of my. Just what you
2: want after a mystical experience.
1: <laughs> And in fact, many people who read the book were kind of pissed that they had never had one before and and started going to their guides and saying, I want a mystical experience. But anyway, you are following this inward path and all sorts of stuff comes up. Childhood traumas will come up, all sorts of unexpected memories and frightening episodes happen. People see monsters and terrifying presences of various kinds. It's hard work. I mean, you wouldn't, describe it as recreational. It's really hard work. People emerge, you know, exhausted, sweating, and feeling like they never want to do it again, even though it was kind of amazing and very useful. The other difference with the recreational use is that you have an integration session afterwards, which is really, really important. It's very easy to dismiss what happens on a psychedelic as Oh, that was the psychedelic talking, you know, just one of those weird drug experiences. But in fact, everything that happens is the product of your mind in the same way that a dream is or a fantasy is or a free association is. It's really valuable material that is being surfaced by the medicine, but it's also very confusing. So being able to work through that material with a therapist who's gotten to know you, is often for many people the key moment where things really lock in and they come out of it with some insight that they didn't have before about their life and or about the nature of existence, a new perspective. You know, I've interviewed dozens of people who've gone through this therapy and they'll very often say it was like the camera on the scene of my life had been pulled up to a greater distance than ever before. And I saw what I was doing. I saw this habit of smoking and, and it seemed really stupid, (laughs) you know? So that's, that's not a profound kind of epiphany, but what's also uh, important about the mystical experience, and this is one of the eight criteria I forgot, is something William James called the noetic quality. This idea that in the midst of a mystical experience, what you learn is not just an insight or an opinion, it's a revealed truth of the universe. It has an authority that nothing you've known before has ever had before. And in the case of an addiction, the recognition that it's stupid or destroying your life or not the best way to live actually becomes sticky. You know, we've all had that experience when we've over-imbibed or something that I'm not gonna do this again, but of course we all do it again, or most of us do. That doesn't seem to happen with people who've had these recognitions under the influence. I want to hold on this idea for a minute. And I'm very glad you brought in the word
2: noetic because I was going to do it and do it awkwardly. I've actually thought as I was preparing for this podcast, that in some ways, the clear way to explain what people are trying to do here is noetic therapy than psychedelic therapy. You're not trying to induce a psychedelic experience, which can be all kinds of things. You're trying to induce a noetic experience because you need people to believe something that even if they come to it intellectually, they can't quite feel. It's that weird experiential quality. In some ways, like the best metaphor always seems to me to be the the movie Inception, where the idea was like they have to incept the idea beneath the conscious level so that it grows in the mind itself. What is the role of the facilitator here and and the therapist? Because something I, I think about from your book is um, one of the early practitioners in the Sidney Cohen saying that one of the reasons he was skeptical of it is that under LSD, the fondest theories of the therapist are confirmed by the patient, that his concern was that the facilitator, the therapist, was basically incepting, implanting a noetic experience, which could still be healthy. I mean, if I implant the idea that Cigarette smoking is bad for your for your life and you're doing it because of this childhood trauma and you're, you know, whatever, and it leads to you not smoking. Maybe it's healthy, even if the idea wasn't really all that true. But nevertheless, that that pathway to noetic experience, it's a really powerful kind of shortcut that if abused could be quite dangerous, too.
1: Well, you'll remember the CIA was very interested in psychedelics. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And they saw it as a tool of mind control. And that is precisely why, that you can plant good or bad ideas with with people. I don't think it's the only thing going on, but it is something that's going on. And that's what I meant when I talked about it having a kind of shamanic element, that the guide has a lot of influence on the experience you have. And one of the things I noticed very quickly was that the patients in America, the volunteers in America, were much more likely to have mystical experiences than the volunteers in England, where they really are allergic to that kind of religious vocabulary. And they would talk about ego dissolution and use all these psychodynamic terms to describe the same thing. But the Americans who are, you know, there's some very spiritual people involved in this research, a couple key people, that the whole idea of uh, the mystical experience, for some reason, is a lot more common in our country. Now, we are also a more religious culture, but I think it has to do with the guides, without question. Whatever's being planted is fairly harmless. This is, after all, the reason you're doing the therapy. So you've planted it yourself as much as the guide has, by saying, I want to take this drug to break this addiction. And it is very, it is very non-directed, but without doubt, the orientation of the guides or the researchers has an influence because everything has an influence it's you know set and setting is so important but the other way to look at it though and we talked about this last time we talked about predictive coding and how the the brain is really a prediction machine and that works at the level of cognition but it also works at the level of belief uh the narratives that we hold in our head and you know Many people with addictions believe they're powerless before their addiction. And they tell stories that are kind of their predictive beliefs that I can't get through the day without a uh, without a drink or without a cigarette. And those beliefs, before you can plant a new one, those beliefs have to be softened. They have to lose their power. And that's the other thing that seems to happen on psychedelics that the rigidity of thinking that so many addicts and depressives and anxious people and people with OCD, they're all trapped in these these loops of, of thinking they can't break out of, these narratives that are stronger than they are. It seems to jog people out of that. It seems to disable predictive coding at every level. And that's what opens up this space of plasticity or possibility. And then what you do with that, yes, that depends on the skill of the therapist, without doubt. But what you're pointing to is one of the reasons I'm skeptical of the, uh, you know, the research that people on psychedelics become more nature connected or less tolerant of authoritarianism. I mean, I have a feeling that that reflects the politics and the fundamental beliefs of the people going into the experience and the people administering it. I'm often like asked, you know, so why don't we just give Donald Trump psychedelics and and he'll, you know, care about the environment more? Well, it could go a very different way depending on who gave it to him. That question of depending
2: on who who gave it to him is important. I want to get into that pretty specifically because this is somewhere where I've never watched this, I've never had this done. So so I am very curious on on how directive the facilitator is. I mean, are they sitting there saying you know, now think about depression and the role it plays in your life, or think about trees and how they're responsible for all human existence being possible. Or think about the, like, what is the level of, are we dealing with a substance facilitated form of hypnotherapy? Or is it much lighter than that? I mean, what what would I hear if I was in the room? You'd hear
1: remarkably little. Um, it would be somebody, you know, with a kind of a kind smile and a light touch and If you started crying or getting really upset, they might reach out and hold your hand. If you said you saw something really terrifying that some monster had appeared or some python was about to eat you, they would say, don't fight it, surrender, go with it. Relax your mind and float downstream, quoting John Lennon. They're very non-directive, except with this one very important piece of advice which is to surrender to whatever is happening. That the anxiety, the bad trip usually comes when you're fighting what's, what's happening to your mind. And you, you feel yourself losing control and you're fighting to hold on. And that's the worst thing you can do on a psychedelic. And so if you feel like you're dying, going crazy, melting, exploding, go with it. That's the kind of thing you'd hear from them. They will not talk about your mother they won't talk about your depression or your addiction unless you bring it up. And some sessions go on for hours without anything being said. And the um, uh, guy doesn't really know what you were thinking about until the the next day when you come back for uh, your integration session. There was one woman I interviewed, a cancer patient, a woman with ovarian cancer named Dina Baser, her cancer had been treated successfully, but she was paralyzed by the fear of recurrence. So she had entered into this trial, drug trial at NYU, and she had this really interesting experience where she went into her body and toured her body. And this happens with a lot of the cancer patients. And she came face to face with a black mass under her rib cage. And she knew it wasn't her cancer because it was in the wrong place but she knew exactly what it was. It was her fear. It was the fear was coming back. And so this woman who was 60-ish and kind of, you know, timid person, small, she suddenly screams out, get the fuck out of my body. And imagine the shock of the guides sitting with her. They have no idea what's going on. But from that moment forward, the black mass vanished It evaporated. And so did her fear. And it has yet to come back. So that wasn't directed, you know, that was kind of the medicine sh- showing her what she needed to see. I know I'm personifying the medicine, which is a weird idea, but that's that's very, very much part of the fabric of this work. And this idea that the mind will take you where you need to go and uh, and confront whatever the problem is.
2: But well, let's focus on, on that personification of, of, of the medicine. I mean, a part of the story you tell in the book is that one reason this falls out of favor is something about it feels very unscientific, that it's too dependent on the facilitator, on the set and setting. I, I mentioned that quote from, from Sidney Cohen, that you're getting the, the ideas of the therapist confirmed by by the patient. He later says that This may work, but there's something almost nihilistic about it, this idea that that stories are being invented and then believed at such a deep level, they're actually changing people's lives. And then on the other hand... You're dealing with a part of the human being that just is not that objective, that we can't study that well, sort of the consciousness, the stories that make it up, the emotional patterns and, and and linkages. A lot of traditional therapy is about trying to replace people's stories with other healthier stories. A certain amount of just medication is people taking something for a while and it gets better and we don't ever really know why or even really know well, what the medication that's the did. Well,
1: because the story of a pill. <laughs> it's a different <laughs> exactly. kind of story, right? It's a story of what a pill is supposed to do for you. And and that story has power. You know, I think part of the reason that it sort of fell out of favor, I mean, the biggest reason was it became illegal and it was a street drug and scientists weren't willing to buck the culture and say, hey, wait a minute, we've got something really good here. They never banned psychedelic research, but I think there was a failure of nerve on on the part of some of the people, the researchers who were doing the work. But yes, it moved against the trend of psychotherapy, which was moving toward a chemical model, a pretty simplistic chemical model. And it seemed, yes, less scientific. You know, there's there's a way in which psychedelic therapy has at least one foot in the humanities rather than the sciences, right? It's about storytelling. It's about talk is important. And it's, again, it's about experience. It's it's not like the medicine is is fixing something in your brain. The medicine is occasioning a kind of experience that's very useful in breaking various blockages and, you know, changing narratives. So it, it does kind of feel, and to some people really unscientific without question. And I think that that has, has hurt in some ways, but it seems to me, you know, we're talking about the mind. We're not just talking about the brain and we have a theory of what's going on in the brain to influence the mind but as you know our understanding of those links how brains create minds if indeed that's if indeed that's where they come from is very provisional
2: and there's a way in which the the mind and the way we seem to react to it is just irreducibly weird and we don't we don't want it to be <laughs> that's always one of the, the the real takeaways i have when i when i talk to a lot of sci- scientists on these issues they don't want it to be. You, you want it to be simple enough that there's a pill with a mechanistic reaction that, that follows. Then you can do your double-blind studies, and they're pretty—they're—they're they're pretty straightforward. And that—that's just been a problem here. I mean, as you say, if it feels shamanistic, if it shares more with things that have traditionally been ruled out of the scientific process because they can't be well-studied, they're not easily reproducible, um, they don't hold in all conditions. There is a culture around all these things on almost aesthetic that helps drive what gets ruled in and out of bounds in in, in society. And that some of this stuff, it's just culturally, aesthetically on the wrong side of the line.
1: Well, it has been. I don't know if it'll continue to be. And I also think there's a there's a pretty long tradition in psychotherapy of like, hey, whatever works. You know, we don't know how SSRIs work. I remember writing in the book, you know, SSRIs increase the, the levels of serotonin in the brain and i had a neuroscientist read it and uh to vet the chapter and he says you know we've never established that we have no idea that's kind of an operative hypothesis so we throw all sorts of drugs at mental health problems that we we really don't understand but we kind of pretend to and we have studies and you know uh, it yeah it always looks more scientific than this kind of session which is really a a hybrid of of a drug therapy and talk therapy, such as we've never really had, and that too, I think, leads to resistance because you you have people who come from the talking side of things who, who who disdain drugs, and then you have people who administer drug therapy and you know in twenty minute sessions and don't have the patience to really delve into the to the patient's mind and and story. So that's going to be a challenge to incorporate psychedelic therapy into the into the system of mental health care i think the you know there's a business model problem but then there's also a kind of staffing problem because you're going to need all this attention for the the brief period you know you need 6 hours at least of therapeutic time during the session you need several hours before the session in preparation and several hours after the session for integration so it's like you know it could be like 20 hours and then never again and the whole field, both the pharmaceutical side and the psychotherapy side is based on either the weekly media, meeting that goes on forever or the daily pill that goes on forever. So it's, you know, it's a square peg in a round hole right now. And there are companies now trying to figure out what the business model will be. And I'm sure somebody will figure it out, uh, but it's going to be different than anything we've seen before. The Show will return after a quick message from our
2: sponsors.
3: Support for The Gray Area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
4: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life.
2: There's a certain comfort or near comfort with the idea that these substances could become a treatment, right? We're, we're, we're reasonably okay with that paradigm. That comes from cannabis, uh, first coming in, in, in through medicalization. And there's an understanding if people are suffering from major treatment-resistant depression and this is how we can help them, then you'd be crazy not to try. And And the, the campaign in Oregon leaned pretty heavily on that. And then as you know, the actual... Valid initiative doesn't restrict it to those folks. And I think that there's something here in the very strange middle role psychedelics play in, in, in our society. That I'd like to hear you, you talk about a bit, which is that Psychedelics are illegal, they're burnout drugs, etc. And then there's often a completely accepted narrative of them being a critical component in the success of very famous and accomplished people. This is very true in the podcast world. I mean, if you look at some of the biggest podcasts, Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss, yeah. they're suffused in psychedelics. But, you know, like the physicist Carlo Rovelli has said that taking LCD helped open his mind to a lot of the key concepts of modern physics. Jonathan Haidt, the political psychologist, credits it with transforming him into a better person and blending the. Seeds of, of of moral foundations theory. Steve Jobs said LSD helped him come up and, and change how he thought about computing. Stuart Brand credits an LSD trip with the campaign that led NASA to turn the cameras around and, and create the blue marble picture of, of planet Earth. There's this weird way in which psychedelics operate as simultaneously illegal but also accepted, particularly among like the wealthy and achievement-oriented and well-connected. That's really strange, and on some level, strikes me as, as quite unfair. I'm curious what you think of it. — Unfair to what? — I think it's unfair that, like in a lot of things, you have what is functionally a regime that restricts access and creates a legality risk that doesn't function that way for people who are
1: well-off and well-connected. — Yeah, I mean, and look, finding an under you know, having an underground guide, which, you know, people in Silicon Valley use pretty reliably, is expensive it can cost $1,500, you know, for a session or something like that. So without question, but, you know, psilocybin is not expensive. People can organize that kind of experience for themselves without spending a lot of money, or they can learn how to grow the mushrooms themselves or how to find them. Um, You can, you know, they grow in nature. So I don't know that there's such a class divide necessarily. To having guided experiences, I would say yes. I have a take on that about the people who've you know, achieved great things or great insights on psychedelics because a lot of the experiences people have on psychedelics are not great. Bad ideas occur to people all the time on psychedelics. I've had my share of them, you know, great insights into the working of the universe that turned out not to have any value whatsoever. I kind of see them. The metaphor I use is that drugs like psilocybin and LSD are mutagens in the same way that a powerful force like radiation causes mutations, some of which lead to valuable new traits that contribute to evolution by essentially introducing variation. Psychedelics does the same thing in the cultural sphere. They lead to lots of fresh thought, most of which is lousy and worthless. But every now and then, if you, if you throw enough ideas, metaphors, breakthroughs up against the wall, some of them are going to be really valuable. And so I see psychedelics as mutagens in the cultural sphere and ideas have come along and probably more in the course of history than we know. I mean, there's a group of religious scholars that believe strongly that at the root of many religious traditions were psychedelic experiences, that the use of these substances in traditional cultures goes back thousands of years and that you could see how psychedelic experience would plant memes like, oh, an afterlife or a beyond or a dimension of reality hidden from us ordinarily. And my guess is that, you know, if you could construct basically a natural history of the imagination, the human imagination, you would find that drugs of all different kinds, but especially psychedelics, probably played a role in contributing all sorts of interesting things to it that we don't have a record of. The other example you didn't mention is uh, Kerry Mullis, the inventor of PCR, the, the technology for replicating RNA that we're all dependent on now during the pandemic. We've all benefited from PCR if we've had a COVID test. He figured out the concept for PCR while tripping and driving his sports car to Mendocino uh, many years ago.
2: I would not have thought of those two things going together all that
1: well. <laughs> yeah. No, not recommended. <laughs> that actually leads me to
2: societal level question, which is if Oregon becomes the first state to do this, it will become the first culture that has a pretty open path in the psychedelics. I mean, maybe with the exception of Amsterdam, but that has a, a very sort of different, I think, touristy vibe to it. And I'm curious if you if you're one of the people who believes that there would be population level differences if these things and these experiences became widely accessible and destigmatized?
1: Yeah, you know, this has been a conversation that's gone on as long as psychedelics have been in the culture. And um, people like Timothy Leary, Aldous Huxley, their interest was not just for personal transformation. It was a political interest in that they they were looking forward toward cultural transformation. And you could argue that, you know, that did happen in the 60s, that the 60s would be very different if not for LSD, that the anti-war movement was, as Nixon believed, fueled by a drug that encouraged people to not accept authority, question things. I mean, for most of history, you know, 18-year-olds go off to war when you tell them to go. And here was this very unusual moment where they were, many of them were saying no, and many of them were using drugs. So that you could make a case that it does have a culture level effect, whether you could drive that in the direction you want to, as some people hope that the widespread use of psychedelics would change our attitude toward the natural world, for example. There's been research. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's a nature connectedness scale in addition to the mystical experience scale that psychology, psychology has. And that uh, people's nature connectedness scores go up after a single psilocybin experience. So let's stipulate that maybe this is true on the individual level, that these drugs change people in certain directions. The other research we have is that the personality domain of openness, uh, it's one of the five personality traits that psychology considers, those scores go up too. People are more open to the other to new ideas, to um, uh, suggestion than they would be than they were before. Even if this is true though, you then get into the the question how do you administer a drug to a whole population? And Timothy Leary had one idea. turn on, tune in, drop out, give it to as many people as you can. And he even calculated how many millions you'd have to turn on before America changed. I think it was 2.9 million or something. And then there were other people who were kind of more Mandarin or elitist, people like Aldous Huxley, Al Hubbard, who felt that that was too destabilizing and that the way to change society through psychedelics was to give it to the elite. You know, this is going back to your point about fairness. Uh, You give it to the... The uh, software designers and the religious leaders and and uh, and corporate executives and and indeed, that was a movement in the fifties that Al Hubbard spearheaded. He had a, a satchel full of LSD and he would turn on people in government, in business, in the arts, thinking that he was going to create a revolution. I mean, I'm I'm skeptical of both approaches. You know, I think that these are tools and that they can be used in very different ways depending on your intention in using them. That they they aren't inherently bettering of humanity. They could be, but they could also be put to other uses. So it's a very hard question, the whole, you know, society level thing. Um, you know, but you can't put LSD in the water supply. It's not like fluoride. That's not going to work. And also it won't work because the sunlight apparently it will destroy it. But, but it won't work for other reasons as well.
2: A, a number of
1: technical problems with that plan. sir. You shouldn't try that
2: one. I'll, I'll say I'm also, I'm interested by your answer because I'm also pretty skeptical of the population level uh, outcomes. People like to talk about them, but I mean, I think you, I think one should look at how things evolved in Silicon Valley and the Bay Area as actually an interesting counterpoint to the Leary era, because you just see that the culture and the cultural context in which these things are used really ends up mattering for how they're experienced. And something that was at one point understood as this great challenge to capitalism becomes a a driver of it. I I think I read you somewhere saying that you know of companies that have microdose Fridays. (laughs) Um, Oh, yeah. and There are companies...
1: There's companies where psychedelics are an important part of the culture and they're used in training programs for their employees, which is a weird idea, because what do you do about people who don't want to use them? And that there are companies where a lot of microdosing goes on. And are they more ethical, more humane places? You know, we haven't done that research, (laughs) but I wonder.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you should expect that the selection effects and the broader culture of the facilitators or the just cultural understanding of what these things are and how they'll be used will end up affecting a lot. And then also, you know, it takes work to hold a set of insights in your own life. And there's a lot of power to to being pulled back. My colleague at Vox, Sean Illing, wrote an amazing piece once about, it was a kind of travelogue piece about going to an an ayahuasca ceremony. I remember the piece
1: well. It was a great piece. It's a great
2: piece. I'll put it in show notes, but he's a wonderful line um, at, at the back of it where he talks about going back into his life and everything in it reinforcing the story of himself, right? There's this moment that the story breaks down, but then you go back and your editor's yelling at you to file copy and your kid needs to be changed and, you know, taken to the park and, you know, your bills need to be paid. And, you know, it, it's a it's a tremendous amount of effort to hold on to something. If you're doing it very in a very directed way where there's already intentionality in your life to change Your relationship to cigarettes or your depression or, you know, your relationship to your job that that's one thing um, possibly because you're you're already there's a lot of focused effort there to hold it. But I think just using them does less than people assume it will because, you know, consensus reality is a powerful thing and it, it it has a lot more time to act on you
1: yeah but I, I I do think that I mean I have seen a lot of transformative experience, especially in the guided realm, where people do hold on to whatever they've learned. And again, that's why it's not just about the drug. it's it's about the whole context. It's the vessel in which it's used. And then you know, of course they're good guides and not so good guides and, and and then charlatans on top of that right now. but in the hands of a of a good therapist, It is a powerful tool for transformation. I'm curious about your journey here then. So it's been
2: about two years since How to Change Your Mind came out. The book had a huge impact. I think this world has probably tried to reach out to you in all kinds of different ways that I can't even um, imagine. There's also been a lot of movement in the science and the legality, as we're talking about here with Oregon, Um, uh, Oakland, uh, you were near where both of us live. just decriminalized psilocybin not long ago. What have you changed your mind about? What do you see differently in this space?
1: Well, I've been amazed at how quickly things are moving and that the respectability of psychedelic research has changed dramatically. There are people who wouldn't go near it. And now, you know, I I teach at Berkeley and there's a group on campus of neuroscientists and psychologists who are starting a a center for the science of psychedelics because they want to do research. These are people who probably wouldn't have done it uh, three years ago. There was too much of a stigma attached. It'd be really bad news for your grad students to have any kind of taint from psychedelics. But now the field of neuroscience and psychology is very excited by it, uh, which I think is great because there's some really good minds that are going to work on the problem and use psychedelics to see what they can learn about the mind and the brain. So I think we're going to, I'm very excited by the fact that we're going to learn a lot just by the. The scientific attention that will be brought to it, so that's that's been very encouraging. Um, lots of money has come forward to support this research. It's still all private money, a lot of it from Silicon Valley, but also from hedge funds in New York, um, di- different kinds of fortunes now. But um, still, nothing from the NIH. They still haven't put a dime into this research, which is soon to be unforgivable given the the promise. I mean, there was. The other thing that happened on Election Day or the day after was a study released by Johns Hopkins that found, had excellent results treating major depression, far greater treatment effect than um, uh, either conventional psychotherapy or SSRIs. So that's very exciting. I mean, as you pointed out at the top, we have a mental health crisis and the pandemic has only made it much worse. And there is this desperate need for new tools. And it looks like we may get a powerful one. So that's all That's all very exciting. Um, uh, you know, I, I worry about irrational exuberance, which kind of doomed things back in the 60s. <laughs> and that the number of people who come to me looking for psychedelic therapy or psychedelics suggests that you're going to have a lot of very uncontrolled use. And uh, people do get into trouble. I mean... I get letters from people who have, uh, who, who, for example, one this week from someone whose daughter died during psychedelic therapy. Um, so you know, bad things can happen. People can have bad results. We're we're working what in the underground. How, how did that? How did that happen? Well, the facts of it are a little mysterious. She was using a uh, kind of one of these designer compounds, something related to MDMA or ecstasy, and she was herself. A psychotherapist who wanted to bring this substance into her practice, and there are things that can happen on on that class of drugs if you're dehydrated or if you're overhydrated that can mess with your um, metabolism and can, you know, I mean, you know, you read about people dying at raves occasionally. Um, it's that sort of phenomenon. But we, I don't know; I haven't read the autopsy reports or anything, and the facts may have gotten a little garbled in transmission. But you know, I've gotten a few reports like that uh, over the last two years, and you know, they come to me because the person <laughs> might have been inspired by reading the book, and that's a, and that's that's a pretty um, awful feeling when that happens. On the other hand, I've heard incredible stories of people who were on the verge of suicide who turned around their lives. So there's a lot happening. It's uh, it's a period of great ferment, and we'll see how it settles. But. It's both exciting and nervous-making to watch. Uh,
2: I think that's a good place to leave it. So always last question, what are three books you'd recommend to the audience?
1: So here's three that I'm excited by, and they're all sort of linked because they're all about nature and our engagement with the natural world. But the best novel I've read in the last five years is uh, Richard Powers' The Overstory.
2: Oh my God, it's so good. Isn't it great? I can't walk through the woods and
1: not think about it. (laughs) I know, and think what's going on under your feet. But uh, it's a wonderful book that kind of displaces the human as, as the center of everything in a way that is, is pretty mind-blowing. And it's, it doesn't feel at all like science fiction, although it's hard to describe it without making it feel that way. But of course, the trees, you know, are very sociable and are real characters in the, in the book. So I love that book. I also loved a book that came out a couple of years ago called uh, The Invention of Nature, it's a biography of Alexander von Humboldt, who's really the first naturalist or environmental scientist. And it's an amazing story. She follows his, uh, his path through the new world. He's German, but he spent a lot of time in, in uh, South America. and He was at the time of Thomas Jefferson, actually. And, and uh, they were, they were uh, close friends and correspondents. And then a new book or a relatively new book uh, in this vein called Entangled Life, by Merlin Sheldrake, who's an English scientist. And it's all about the fungal kingdom and has a lot in common with the uh, the overstory in that uh, there's much on the the networking of mushrooms and and, and what a force that is in reality. But it's a beautifully written book. Uh, He's a scientist not afraid of a great metaphor, but it's rigorous. There's a lot of mystical stuff about mushrooms out there. And he talks about psychedelic mushrooms as well as all different other kinds of mushrooms. But those three books together, in terms of you know I'm, my longstanding interest, what knits my work together is, is is our engagement with the natural world, which I see the use of these substances as part of. I mean, I think when we when we take these some of these plant medicines or fungal medicines into our bodies, we're engaging with nature in a really profound way. And so anyway, that's these are all kind of. Heroes of mine, Andrea Wolf, Richard Powers, and Merlin Sheldrake. Michael Pollan, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. Always a pleasure to talk to you.
2: Thank you to Michael Pollan for being here, to Virginia Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing the Ezra Klein shows of Vox Media Podcast Production. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts.